Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Pattern. I'm here with Pedro Alves, CEO and founder of a company called Opal AI. He is a veteran in the machine learning and data science space. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's nice being here. Yeah, so why don't we kick it off and uh, you tell us a little bit about Opal AI and um, how you guys got started. The idea behind starting it was after my experiences in the field, doing machine learning in so many different industries, and the two big lessons I learned were extremely dichotomous. It was one, the magic of AI machine learning, how it can impact every industry, and two, how massively disappointing it is. And so those two, you know, it's hard to believe that they can coexist, but they can. And in my mind, it's what is causing that problem. Why something that I know is so wonderful is disappointing so many people. And that passion for having, making sure that AI delivers on its promises is what got me started with Opal, trying to solve the problem of why is it not delivering? So why is it not delivering? (laughs) I think one of the factors is the supply and demand problem, the lack of talent, which in turn, is a problem of the field itself. Everybody that I talk to, I usually go back to the same analogy to aviation and you know the early days where the pilots were the people building the planes, right? The Wright brothers and trying to imagine trying to open up United Airlines back then. How do you train and hire 10,000 Wright brothers? You're not going to succeed. And I think that's where we are today with AI. It's the requirements for becoming a great AI machine learning scientist are tremendous and unreasonable. And so these guys are unicorns and you can't mass produce unicorns. So just like in aviation, the field has to advance so that the requirements for doing the job are reduced to a more reasonable standard. And then you can start mass producing pilots or machine learning scientists. Uh, So that is the problem. And that is exactly what we're tackling at Opal. It's What are these things that can be removed from the plates of these people so that their jobs are more efficient and effective and they can be trained more easily, right? And deliver more to their companies in less time with less risk. Then you start really delivering value to these companies and then nobody will be disappointed anymore because they're getting value out of it. So Opal AI, uh, when we talked on the phone, you described it as the pilot dashboard for machine learning engineers. What's going on in that dashboard? Could you describe a little bit about the the product itself? Yeah. So, you know, when you're thinking about a project, right, you start off with some business goal that you're trying to achieve with machine learning, right? And figuring that out is hard sometimes, right? It requires thinking. And then once you have that, you go into the part of the project that is, okay, given that that's the exact business goal, how do I set up a problem that solves that? What is the data that goes in? What is the target I should predict? And then eventually, how do I you know, make sure that the, whatever prediction this model is making will generate some differences in the company, will, will actually impact something? Once you do all that, I believe your work should be done as a data scientist. Because after that, what you would do normally is feature engineering, algorithm selection, tuning, hyperparameter optimization, and then productionizing of the model, making sure it's fast running on the cloud, et cetera. All that that I just said should be the touch of a button. And that button is Opal. Got it. So you go in and take all of the things that are almost, you deem rote and just T 
tedious from a machine learning engineer's job where this is the stuff they do over and over again and automate that. Yes, but ironically enough, a lot of the data scientists don't think that is the tedious part of the job. <laughs> they like that. <laughs> they enjoy that, which they'll have to adapt because that is not the value they bring to their companies. And a lot of people don't know that. They think that is the value, but tuning knobs, you know, tuning parameters and turning knobs is not value, right? It's funny, if you ask a scientist, on average, you know, how much time they spend, what's the thing that takes the most time? The most common answer is wrangling the data, cleaning the data, wrangling the data. But the funny thing is, if you ask their managers, their managers, almost as frequently as that answer comes from data scientists, the, the answer that most comes out of managers is, oh, it's tuning the model. It's that last little like, oh, let me make it 1% better. Let me try this other algorithm. Let me tune this parameter. And it's very different. And the reason is the wrangling of the data and the, you know, putting together the data set, cleaning the data is the most hated, tedious part. It's not interesting. So it sticks out in the mind of the scientist as, oh yeah, that is my biggest time sink. That's because he doesn't enjoy that. He enjoys tuning the models. So he doesn't even realize that is where he's spending a lot of the time. As people are listening to this podcast, I'm sure a ton of them are going to be, he's so wrong. You know, it is the data wrangling. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but yeah, I, I don't know. It, maybe for some people, but for a lot of people out there, they'll be done with a model, sure, in two weeks, but they'll spend the next couple months still tuning it just because. So... Yeah, and there's people trying to solve the problem of data wrangling, right, and data cleaning. So that is something else as well. Interesting. That's like almost a, it's the cognitive dissonance of the man on the ground who's doing the unwanted job, you know, mm -hmm. the unlabored or the unloved labor. And that just sticks out the most to you. Really, really interesting insight. And you've had a lot of experience in the enterprise. You were chief data scientist at Banjo. You first got your PhD from Yale. And so you've kind of worked at it all. I was looking at all the different, you know, the swath of things that you've worked on. And it's mm -hmm. everything from healthcare to supply chain optimization to sales funnel optimization. So all the enterprise-y things. So you really have a good idea of what these managers <laughs> really care about. Is that how you started after piecing together all your experience, you, these kind of things just popped out in your mind and then led to Opal? Yeah. Uh, first, I want to clarify. Mm -hmm. I actually still did not get my PhD from Yale. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I left before finishing a couple of my last papers. I was, you know, it was an incredible lab that I was in. And uh, I think I ended up with like 10 publications together with the team there. But the professor still wanted one more paper that was the focal point of, of my work, which was focused on ensembling techniques. And I'm happy to say we published the paper earlier this year. So that should be coming soon, that degree. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. So I think by next year, your statement will be correct because I did <laughs> finally publish that last paper. So if my professor, if Mark, if you're listening, I need that degree. <laughs> uh, no, but anyway, I just wanted to you know, correct that. Yeah. So back to the question, I think, yes, I mean, I have played a lot of the different roles, right? And understood the different parts of the company and how they see these teams. And 
let's assume we solve the supply and demand problem and there's now people that are trained more easily and there's enough people. Mm-hmm. You still need a process that can efficiently get good results. And here's what I think. Currently, because it's not only that it's hard to, to hire these people because it's hard to find them, but once you do, these projects, you know, a team or a person or a small team can do two, three projects a year, maybe four, maybe. And so the number is still small enough. And that exacerbates the other problems, like, for example, communication, knowing why you got a data science team in the first place, where you're going to use AI. Those are not easy to solve. And so when these companies get teams like that, it's usually because they're pressured by the board. You need AI. Where are we going to use AI? I don't know. Well, let's, let's get a team and find out. And so when you fail at a couple of projects, but these projects take four months, you basically you wasted a year, right? And the frustration builds up. So the communication, understanding how to use it, there's no magic bullet that's going to solve that. What's going to solve that is trial and error and figuring out what works for your company. So there's not going to be one single solution. But if you're using something like Opal that your time to hire is not six months to a year to find great people. It's, you know, it's much quicker. Once you have the team, these projects can happen in, you know, once you have the problem identified and the data set together, you're done in a couple of days. You're now doing dozens of projects a year. Guess what? You will make probably the same number of mistakes, two, three, four, but that's going to take two months out of the year. And then the communication is going to improve understanding how to use AI in your company and where it actually works is going to be quicker. And so now before people get burned out and leave or the managers decide to fire the entire team because it took a year and nothing came out, they didn't get a chance to actually work on those other problems, communication, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think indirectly we're going to help solve just because if you can get through that pain in two months, hopefully you'll be able to start figuring out where data science or AI can benefit your company much, much quicker. Got it. So there was another aspect to some of the content you had online, which was that people almost have these like very high bar hopes for what AI can accomplish. And it's sometimes not about the big wins. It's Mm -hmm. about these smaller wins that are more pervasive, you know, throughout Mm -hmm. the enterprise. Can you talk a little bit about those and what sort of small wins you've seen and how beneficial they've been? Yeah, obviously the media attaches itself to things that are exciting. And (laughs) exciting things are things like general AI, right? General intelligence and self-driving cars that are fully, truly autonomous. And that's good because it drives interest, which then drives investment and funds into it, which then drives research and advances the field. But the problem with that cycle is the time to achieve those goals is longer than what the people with the checkbooks and the media think. (laughs) And they're not patient. And eventually the bill comes due. And when it does, if you have nothing to show, that is a problem. That's where all these other solutions that you mentioned in your question, like the smaller targets can bridge the gap of, oh no, it is paying its dues. Look, you know, AI is giving us value. So we can continue to invest in these longer shots because of it. And these things are, I mean, actually probably going to move more 
the bottom line of companies than any of these others. These others are going to make a few unicorns, right? The company that comes up with general AI or the few, it's going to be huge. The money associated with that is, is massive. But when you're talking about the number of companies that will be able to benefit from that, well, eventually will benefit from the product, but not benefit from having invented it, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But with the other solutions, it's, you know, any insurance company should be predicting everything about how they work, right? Because if they understand how much people are going to cost, they can allocate their funds better, which means they can charge less for insurance and at the same time, you know, have a better portfolio of where their money is. And then if they can use AI to help assign the teams to the different projects so that they're not over or under assigning people, they can use AI to help hire people. If they can use AI to you know, basically any function that's well-defined enough, I think is a problem that can be solved today with AI. If it's, if it's a problem that's well-defined and you know exactly, you know, as a human, how do we make that decision? What is the data that goes into our brains to make that decision? And what is the actual decision we're making? If you can understand that, you can frame it into a problem that the AI can solve today. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, like I said, you know, obviously for finance, you know, deciding people's credits, right? If you could predict that better, predict when people are going to default, predict what's the optimum numbers you should be planning to charge a person per month so that it's beneficial for them and for you. You know, advertisement, obviously deciding which ads to show, uh-huh. right? With healthcare, I worked with rehospitalization. So when you're getting a person out of the hospital, right, they stayed. They were admitted. Now they're about to be discharged to set home. If you can predict the probability that they're going to return with that same problem within a week or four weeks, then you can use your resources more intelligently, meaning send a nurse to the person's house to check up on them or at least give them a phone call. And the hospitals can't do that for 100% of their patients. So either they just don't do it to anybody because they could just randomly pick people, but that's not very efficient. But with these models, you now know, look, it's only, you know, 5% of the population that really needs that help. And we certainly can allocate the times of our nurses and physicians and physician assistants to go check in on these people. And then it's better healthcare for everybody mm-hmm. because you're allocating your resources better because of, a you know, model that you built. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that all makes sense in terms of those like smaller wins that you can have. That and those are big wins, yeah. by the way. Those are, yeah. those are big wins. They're, yeah. they're smaller in the sense of they're, they're not easily solved problems that if you get a good data scientist, these problems are going to be solved very quickly and efficiently. That, in that sense, they're small, but then their impact is massive. 100% yeah. agree. So going back to a little on Opal AI, where are you guys at now? Customer-wise, revenue-wise? Yeah. Yeah, please. So... We started in March, so just seven months. Just seven months. You're yeah. a young one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, really, really young. We have trialed our software with probably 15 to 20 different data sets. Probably two-thirds of those data sets were through engagements with other companies, and about a third were you know public data sets just to validate our software. And we touched on a lot of different industries, insurance, manufacturing, Wi-Fi optimization, mobile game pricing, lung cancer. It was a small startup that was even yeah smaller than us. But uh, anyway, it had some interesting data. So yeah, so a lot of different fields that we've touched. And we have one paying customer, Mist. They do Wi-Fi optimization and they're using our product. As most of the others, they started with a free trial. 
and said, look, you know, these are the models we're building and we built them by hand and it took this much time and this is the accuracy. Let me push a button and see if what you're saying is true. It should be better and it should be much, much, much faster. Right? And once they see that that's true, then they're like, okay, great. Our data scientist can now do 20 projects a year and not two or three. Mm-hmm. And then we don't have to hire five more data scientists because we're a startup anyway. And we're still understanding, some companies are still understanding the value that AI brings to them, the bottom line. It's not clear for everybody, right? If you're an advertisement company and you're 1% more accurate and converting, that's a dollar amount you can measure. Because every time somebody clicks, you know, you make an X number of cents. And so if you're 1% more accurate, blah, 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 you do the math and you know, oh, that's going to get me $3 million more per month. Mm-hmm. If you're using AI in a way that's not as directly linked to you know, value, it's you're still trying to gauge how valuable it is. And so you don't want to go out and hire a million-dollar team yet. So yeah, so Mist Systems is using us. They're happy. They're paying customer. We have Ericsson is trialing with us. So Fantastic. Wow. They, it's a Fortune 5. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're pitching us against a couple, a few of our competitors. Mm-hmm. We've already beaten out one, the biggest competitor we have. They're already out of the race, let's call it, within Ericsson. Amazon's machine learning, Google's machine learning cloud. Uh, not those. Not, the, no. not those. Okay. No. It's a startup, but they've raised like $200 million. They're okay. five years old. Maybe if I say a couple more points, you'll know exactly who I'm talking I, about. I, but <laughs> let me just leave it at that. They're big. I mean, big as far as like how much they raised, the number Got of employees, etc. But think, they're not one of the big, big companies. They're still a startup. Still like H2O AI or something like that. Yeah. Well, something like that. Something it's like not. That. It's actually not them that I'm thinking of. Got I don't it. think H2O has raised that much money. But they're certainly a competitor. Yeah, H2O was, is certainly a competitor. But yeah, so Ericsson's still playing with our stuff. Uh, and then we have a couple other companies. One that's... Signing on to an engagement, they're a big online retailer for fashion, uh, apparel, let's call it. They're big, but they're ones that are very private. They don't want their names Mm -hmm, out there, mm -hmm. but I think eventually we'll be able to publicize it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so officially one paying customer, but we have three that are pretty far along in the pipeline. And then, you know, trying to now finally start growing the pipeline because we're growing the team. So now we want to hire three more people this year. And then continue hiring four or five people in the first, let's say, four or five months of next year. So with the people, we'll be able to advance the product fast enough to keep up with anything else. Fantastic. After only seven months, a couple of Fortune Fives trying it out and a paying customer. That's amazing growth. Yeah, um, clearly building something that, that people want. I'm so excited. There's kind of two aspects that I want to go down. One is some of the technicals of like what's going on behind the scenes to actually automate the feature engineering, automate the hyperparameter optimization, uh, tuning the models. But before that, I actually want to, there's the common adages that in machine learning to do proper feature engineering, you really need to know have a deep expertise with the data you're working with. But what I'm getting, what I'm starting to understand is that maybe that's not always the case. Where do you see that breaking down where you don't actually need that expertise with the data? Yeah. So I think a great example is is Kaggle. And I think it's been misunderstood in a couple different ways, the effects of Kaggle. So when you first think about that and you look at Kaggle and you understand what Kaggle is, and for the people listening don't know, it's a competition, right? It's a website that hosts competitions where you, if you're a company, let's say you're Ford and you have a data set and you want to see how well can a data scientist build this model, you submit your data with the target 
to Kaggle and say, I'm willing to pay $100,000 to whoever gives me the best solution. And usually two to 5,000 data scientists will come on and build models. And then, you know, somebody's going to win the prize and Ford gets the benefit of having that model. So what Kaggle has shown is that these Kagglers, that's what they're called, <laughs> and uh, consistently it's the same guys that win every time, right? Which says something. It says, one, there's some generic knowledge that these people learn that is useful all the time. And the solutions that come out of the Kaggle competitions in accuracy and performance will almost always beat whatever that company built themselves with the experts in the field. So people's first reaction was, oh, clearly there's no knowledge needed, no domain expertise, because these people that have no domain expertise are consistently beating the domain experts. And it can appear that way, but that's actually not true. Because here's the thing, when a data set and a problem gets shipped to Kaggle for these Kagglers to work on, the domain expertise has already been imbued in the data. The data set itself was created by a domain expert. He had to choose exactly how to frame the problem, what exactly is the target, how to put together the target, because you know a lot of times these answers are not obvious. What features that come into the system, raw features, but still features, are gonna be used, right? And, and how you're framing the problem. Is it gonna be framed as a time series problem? Is it gonna be framed like a classification? This knowledge, comes from the domain expert, and then when the Kagler gets it, it's already in there. So really, what this showed is that this perfect marriage of really great communication between the domain expert and the expert data scientist is the winning combo. But that's super rare in a company, because either they try to hire a person that has both pieces of knowledge, and that's really hard, or the communication isn't the best. But through Kaggle, I think it forces people to put together a well-formed, structured problem. And so, almost ironically, by having these people not communicate, right, they're actually communicating better than if they were in the same company. And so, I guess that's the answer, right? It's yes, domain expertise is needed, but if you can marry the knowledge of a Kaggler, which clearly shows that it will create the best model possible for any domain, with the domain expert, right? So if, if there's a software that can do it, then you have no problem communicating because the domain expert now can be the one using the software, right? And having the software act as the top Kaggler, basically, and have an automatic feedback with that. So going back to the question, I think the one of the things, one of the aspects is, what is it that these Kagglers are learning? So a famous paper that came out it's not that new anymore, but, you know, learning to learn by Google, right? Which is basically kind of, you know, it's hyperparameter optimization, right? It's learning is you have a model, you push data through it, and that model learns. It learns how to predict, right? Up till recently, a scientist was the one doing the learning to learn because the learning to learn is what works in learning, and you're learning that. So you try five different algorithms, you see the results you get, and then based on that, you learn, oh, these are the things that work. These are the things that learn. And then you try five others. And then you do that for a month and you end up with great models. You're learning to learn, right? And that can be automated because it's tuning parameters, choosing algorithms. But when I thought back, you know, look at my career and okay, with the assumption of sure, I agree, within a project, I am learning to learn. I'm the one, you know, tuning these parameters. 
But that's not entirely true because with every project that I've done, I got better at it and I got faster at it. So I wasn't just learning to learn from scratch because otherwise I would never get better. There was something that I learned that carried over from project to project that allowed me to keep consistently getting better at learning to learn, which means as a scientist, I was learning to learn to learn, <laughs> right? And, and it sounds redundant, but no, but that's really what's happening. You're getting better at learning to learn as a scientist. So that's one of the two pieces of IP that we have that's unique is the learning to learn to learn. Can it get better with every project, with every data set that it sees and get better at the learning to learn, just like a Kagler would, right? A guy that just enters Kaggle, he's okay. You know, watch him through a couple of years of being consistently participating and he'll start becoming one of those guys that consistently wins. He knows the best places to spend his time and what to try and what not to try, including feature engineering, right? The raw features come in, but you know, they know, oh, that kind of feature, usually these things work, these things don't. Recognizing the patterns and what's actually happening. I think that is, like I said, you know, that's one of the two pieces of IP we have today. But going forward, I have a lot more, like, you know, deeper ideas into what is actually happening in that process. Because if we can understand, you know, there's learning to learn and then learning to learn to learn, etc. But if you just thinking about at the end of the day, all that's happening is some decision boundary is being drawn in the hyperdimensional space, right? The decision boundary is the classifier, if you will, and the hyperdimensional space is all the features you have. So it doesn't matter what you're talking about, whether it's deep learning or random forest or hyperparameter optimization or learning to learn to learn. All that's happening is that decision boundary is getting better. What better means is a question to be asked and answered. But if you can frame all those problems into just that, into how do we understand what is happening to this decision boundary that makes it better and how a great data scientist moves and molds this decision boundary. You can formulate a problem in a much, much more meta level that you can end up creating a universal solution that understands what it means really at a very deep level, a level that we don't even understand because we're not thinking in those terms of you know, molding a decision boundary. But I think there's a much more exciting solution out there. But that's something for like a year from now. I think. <laughs> I'm just rambling on that. But I, those are exciting. Yeah, it's uh, great to see the topics. excitement. Yeah. So as I kind of understand it is you have models. You then, you know, these are the business models, the, the things you actually give to the customers. Then you have a model which tunes that business model. And then you're saying that you have a learning to learn to learn, which is you have a model on top of that that actually tells that intermediary, well, given how it tuned and what the results were, how do I tune it better the next time? And it's this learning to learn to learn, which is really fascinating. And that's going into a little bit on defensibility, competitive advantage of OpenAI. It's the thing that gets stronger mm -hmm. with each individual customer you have. Right. You're getting better and better at learning to learn to learn. Love that, by the way. <laughs> and that's a, that's a really fascinating, you know, going back just a couple, three steps ago, the feature engineering and not necessarily needing a subject matter expert, or rather that the subject matter expert has already identified those features. And that was where the domain expertise came in. Do you see the need for a feedback there where it's not just, you know, this is working with there's the question of, well, what do I do with the data I have right now? And then there's the follow-up of, well, what additional data could I be getting to make this 
even better. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's one of the things I've seen is where, depending on things like feature importance, mm -hmm. right? So feature selection and feature importance are pretty well tied together. You're saying you'll automate all of that feature selection. And then is there a way for us to feed that back to the business and say, hey, well, well, we actually found that these couple of features are really important. Maybe you should gather more data of that type to feed into it. How does that? Yeah, there's two things that I see there. So one is, having people be comfortable with the choices the model's making and why it's making those choices, which is the whole talk about feature importance and how these features affect the decisions of the model. There's a great paper on that that highlights this perfectly. It's looking at ImageNet, which is a famous data set for detecting objects, right? Classifying objects. And a couple of the objects are a Siberian Husky and a wolf. And they look very, very similar, right? And the paper shows, look, this model got the best results out of anybody in telling the difference between these two animals. And so you should trust it, right? Because it performed well on the training set and it performed well on the test set that was held out. And then they obviously go through the paper and say, well, if we actually use the neural networks to simply you know, do a back propagation and identify the pixels that are most highly impacting the output, right? So what, why is the network making these decisions? What are the pixels that are generating that? And they found that zero pixels on the animals were leading to the decision. It was, if the background was snowy, it was a, a Siberian Husky. And if it was woods, it was a wolf. It turns out the whole data set was comprised of just that kind of data. So what happens when you see one of those animals in a veterinarian clinic the model has no idea. This model clearly has not learned anything about <laughs> is it a wolf or a Siberian Husky at all, right? It cannot tell the difference. But if you just look at the accuracy, it looks like it can. Mm -hmm. So that's where understanding not just feature importance, but understanding like model interpretability, right? And that's one of the things we're actually working on is model interpretability. Can we generate reports that are human readable that will make people comfortable that, oh, okay, these are reasonable choices this is reasonable, right? The second aspect of understanding this is, like you said, growing data. I have personal experience that highlights that, which is we were at Banjo. One of the things we detected in the images were, you know, events, you know, fires and crashes and protests and floods. Mm -hmm. And so detecting fire trucks was important. And ImageNet, again, that data set, fire truck is one of the objects in it. And it's a couple of years ago now that people said, oh yeah, now we're better than human at classifying these objects, which that's a whole hour and a half rant that you would get from me, but I'm going to spare people right now from that. But we used the, the ImageNet winners to see how well do they detect fire trucks. And the thing with ImageNet is it's a semi-balanced data set. It's not completely balanced, but it's about a thousand objects and it's about a million pictures. And when you look at social media data, out of every million pictures, you have about half a million selfies and 300,000 cats and 200,000 mm -hmm. plates of food and then one fire truck. The class imbalance is actually more than a million to one. So when we use the ImageNet models, for every 60 detections of fire truck, one was a fire truck. 59 mistakes, one correct classification of a fire truck. And that the recall, even there, wasn't even that great. So we had to build our own model and we had to grow a much bigger data set and we went from hand labeling 3 million images to 4 to 7 to 8 to 9 to 10. We got to 10 million and still the false positives on fire trucks were too big. And obviously 
you know, at that point, we still needed all these negatives because we were detecting a bunch of other objects. But, you know, it gets to your point of we knew that if we kept at that, we would probably hit over 100 million pictures and still not have clean enough predictions of fire trucks. So what we had to do was active learning, which is not very popular, but basically it's the process of understanding, can you understand what new data points you should get labeled and added to your data set so that you don't have to go to a billion images or a hundred million or 200 million images. So once we did that and we started doing that properly, remember we went all the way up to 10 million we added, I think it was something like 50,000 more pictures. That's a drop in a bucket. And that was it. We got to the right number of false positives because of that. Because those 50,000 were highly specific pictures, right? Mm-hmm. In the regions of the close to the decision boundary, close to areas that the model hadn't understood yet. And that basically allowed that. So yes, that's something actually that's on our roadmap is having automatic active learning so that the users that spend, you know, some customers spend tens of millions of dollars a year paying people to label data. And if they're not doing it efficiently, they're probably throwing 95% of that money in the trash. I mean, if they can use active learning, they'll cut down by more than an order of magnitude how much they spend on labeling data and label just the necessary data mm-hmm. to help the model improve. You're one of the first people I've talked to about that's had experience with active learning. What are the you know, if you had to describe it kind of layman's terms of what's going on in terms of the features, are there any kind of intuitive ways to think about it? Yeah, I mean, one of the simplest methods for active learning is simply look at where the model is confused, right? So if you have something, a simple model that just says, is this picture a cat or a dog? So it, it's only two outputs, right? And it's giving you a probability between 100% certain it's a dog and 100% certain it's a cat, Whenever you see an image that's like 50%, right? I mean, th- there's problems with that, but that is the simplest method because clearly those are the pictures that the model is confused about. It's right on the fence of equally certain if it's a dog or a cat or equally uncertain if it's a dog or a cat. So you should probably mine more of those images and not the images that I'm already 100% sure it's a cat or 100% sure it's a dog. Like I said, that is not the best way to do active learning, but that is a way to do active learning. Mm -hmm. It's certainly Mm -hmm. the easiest and Mm -hmm. simplest, and it will get you results. There are a lot more complex ways that will get you better results, but at least, you know, from understanding what is actually happening, that is one thing. Because truly, there could be pictures that even to a human are ambiguous, ambiguous, right? So then it doesn't matter how much you're going to mind that type of picture. It's always going to be ambiguous. It's for whatever reason an ambiguous picture. And sometimes there are going to be pictures that the model incorrectly learned to be certain that it's something and it's actually wrong. Mm-hmm. So then that's why just doing that it doesn't solve the problem completely. But at least you get the picture of it's just trying to, again, going back to that decision boundary, it's understanding where the decision boundary needs to move, mm-hmm. where around the decision boundary it's not performing well. And sometimes it's actually regions far away from the decision boundary that are big mistakes that the decision boundary has to move all the way over there. Oh, that is fascinating that you guys had to do that and it worked so well. 50,000 out of 10 million is nothing. Yeah, yeah. That's great. And also a very cool, that's exactly the sort of thing I would imagine on the machine learning dashboard is yeah. <laughs> something is, is kind of, hey, here are the features that are performing well. Here's the features that aren't. So let's fix that up a little bit. So going into a little bit about the um, product, I'd like to dive a little on the on the technicals of it. Are you guys creating neural networks? Are you creating 
one of many random forests. What yeah. models are the end result? And, you know, can you speak to any of those intermediary models that you, you know, the learning to learn or the learning to learn to learn? Yeah, yeah. The final model that comes out to the customer is always a neural network. It's always a neural network. Yes. Interesting. The advantages it has are when compared to the things that really succeed, they're faster for prediction mm-hmm. and they have a smaller memory footprint. So especially, you know, when you're talking about the possibilities of, with customers with an IoT, if they want to deploy these models on the device itself, it has to be lightweight, it has to be fast and have a small memory footprint. And you certainly, like, if you look at the things that win Kaggle, they're massive monstrosities. <laughs> they never, ever get put in production. <laughs> we were testing our stuff and one of the Kaggle competitions, we ended up with a score that landed us in fourth place. This was an old competition though. There was about 5,000 competitors and all the winners had these massive, massive ensembles. And to predict, not train, to predict on the data, it took about 12 hours to just make the predictions. And we were fourth decimal place away from first place. So insignificant. And it took 34 seconds for us to predict on that same data set instead of 12 hours. So that's the difference between feasible to be put in production and unfeasible. That's why it's a neural network. Now, does a neural network, is it always the best type of model for every data set? Absolutely not, right? Neural networks slash deep learning have successfully won the realm of images. They have not won many other realms. Otherwise, they'd be winning every kind of competition, and they're not, mm-hmm. right? So why then would I settle with something less than the best? The reason, again, is the memory and speed. But can we get the best of both worlds? And that's the second piece of IP. So using the learning to learn to learn, you know, something comes in, and we do try everything. We work with all kinds of feature engineering, dimension reduction, random projections, and like genetic type algorithms of, of generating new features. And then you go into all the different types of models from SVMs to random forest to XGBoost boost to some really weird, unheard of ones, but basically everything out there. And then all kinds of combining these models, stacking them, everything that a Kaggler would do to squeeze every last percentage of, of accuracy out of the data. So once our system does that and it believes it has squeezed every little percentage of accuracy out of the data, We then enter into the second phase, which actually is kind of happening during the entire time, which is called behavioral simulation. And behavioral simulation is our second piece of IP, which is a unique way of training neural networks to behave like it's something else. So if we can train a neural network to behave like this massive monstrosity, can we get the accuracy of the monstrosity and the speed and the memory of a neural network? And the answer is yes. And that's why we will give you a neural network, but we believe it is the best of both worlds. It's getting the same accuracy as a monstrosity that internally our system is figuring out, and it's getting the speed and the memory footprint of a small neural network. Yeah. Wow, there's a lot behind what you've built in seven months. It's, it's, as I start to understand more of the pieces, there's a lot there. You've both simulated a Kaggler to produce their ensembles and at the same time leveraging that simulation to then train this like neural network for, you know, all the memory footprint and speed and those reasons. Really, really cool stuff that you have underneath the hood there. Did all this kind of just come to you? Have you been thinking about it for a while? I've been, you know, I've been working in so many of these things 
independently through my experiences over the last four years, maybe five now, five years. So it certainly wasn't all generated in my mind in the last seven months, right? It's a fruit of the last five years of work and research I've been doing in a sense, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we did develop everything in the last seven months, but you know, if I was fresh, new into the field, I wouldn't have been able to do all this in seven months. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's really, really interesting tech behind the scenes. Thank you so much, Pedro. It was a great conversation. I definitely learned a lot. Yeah, this was, this was awesome. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Pattern and we will see you next week. Mm -hmm.